Ezra chapter 8, verse 15. Now I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camped for three days, and when I observed the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shimeiah, Elnatan, Yarib, Elnatan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyrib and Elnatan, teachers. And so I sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Casaphia, and I told them what to say to Edo and his brothers, the temple servants at the place Casaphia. That is to bring ministers to us for the house of God. According to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, and his sons and brothers, eighteen men, and Hashabiah, and Yeshiah, the sons of Merari, and with his brothers and their sons, twenty men, and two hundred and twenty of the temple servants whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, for our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek Him. But His power and anger are against all those who forsake Him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and He listened to our entreaty. Skip down to verse 31. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. So now, Father, we pray for Your Spirit to now speak through Your Word. We've heard You in many ways, Father, always proclaiming and magnifying Jesus. We seek to hear you now in your word and, and hear how this, how this story, this ancient story, this teaching has impact and application for us today. May we see it in truth and understand it in faith. And Father, I pray that you will prepare us for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, Amen. In the story before us, Ezra prepares to embark upon a holy mission of high consequence. And in a similar way, we're on the verge of a mission, I believe, of high consequence. We're on the verge of putting our faith where our mouths have been for the past six years. We're on the edge. We're we're looking over into into the unknown. How is God going to do what He's going to do? How is He going to provide? I don't know. There are are no secrets that we're going to spring on you at some turn or some juncture ahead. We are right now just proclaiming we have no idea. But we know that God is the Lord. I was thinking earlier this week about that first meeting in Barb and Rod's living room, and I, I know I, I wax like an elephant about it every now and then, but wax eloquent, wax like... Anyway, I remember being there that night, and I was thinking, what was the first thing that was taught? And what was the first thing that I said? I was curious, so I went to the website, and you can do that. You can go and, and go to the media section and download Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it was that first teaching of the very first night, October the 8th, 2003. It's there on record. And this is what I said. God loves to do new things. He loves to do new stuff to create, to recreate. I'm so excited to be standing here tonight. Not having any idea what this will look like tomorrow or next week or the month after that, but knowing God is doing something, a new thing. 
And at the time, I didn't have any idea what I was talking about. I was looking out at 10, 15, 20 people. And, you know, sometimes you speak words of faith even before the faith comes, even before you really know, but you're saying it because you have a sense that God's going to do something, but what is that going to be? Back six years ago, what we even share today was not logical. It was not envisioned. But spiritually, we all had a sense that something unique was going on. That the Lord truly did call this together. Okay, He's about to do a new thing again. I am convinced of this. Now I can say I've seen Him do great things in and through this fellowship. But now I believe once again He's just getting started. He's about to do a new thing. Now, someone might say, Rick, aren't you always saying that He could come any minute? And if that's the case, why would God be doing a new thing? If He were to come this afternoon, why did we spend all this time this morning praying with and listening to and hearing from our shepherds? Why, if He's about to come, would God start up a new thing? Why not just wait Him out? You know, if we really believe His coming is imminent, why don't we just step back and wait? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. That's the point. Even if I absolutely knew that he was going to be here this afternoon, we would be here this morning. So doing until he comes. In the last moments before the church is caught up, I absolutely believe the Lord will have just planted a new fellowship somewhere. I believe that there will be a new ministry that will just have started seconds before the Lord says, Come up here. Somebody is going to express faith in Jesus Christ for the very first time, and within split seconds, we will go up. And I've shared before, and we're all waiting for that person. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. God, I believe, will be absolutely actively at work until in the twinkling of an eye this age will end. And so that's what he invites us to. Not to be sitting back and waiting, but to be actively waiting, actively pursuing the return of Jesus Christ. Now Ezra, in our story, is preparing to embark on a great journey. I've told you before, from Babylon to Jerusalem, it's about 1,000 miles, 900 miles, plus or, plus or minus a bit there. And so he's about to head up there, but it's more than just that trip. It's once he gets there, what the Lord is stirring in the heart of Ezra is to go up to Israel and to stir the hearts of the believers there. To stir the hearts up of his people. Gang, that's what we're doing. We're not embarking on a building program. We are embarking on a stirring of faith. And that's how we have to look at this. This is about faith. This is about believing God for His promises. The building, that, that, that's a side issue. Just like this barn, side issue. The reality and the issue and the focus is faith. Now, our journey ahead of us may be long. And the challenges may be great. There may be enemies and ambushes along the way. So I want to ask you all to consider this question, who wants to go? And who wants to go? Who wants to claim this journey as your journey? Not as the journey of, oh, my church is doing that. Oh yeah, I go to the church of the bridge. Aren't they building or something? Yeah, that's what they're doing. I don't want to hear that kind of language from anybody who's here. No, that's what we're doing. This is my journey. This is my faith. This is where I have been called to be. 
I've shared this with you before. If you're not called to step out on this journey, there are plenty of fellowships where you can serve the Lord and worship the Lord and other places you can go. I don't want anybody to go, but I want everybody who is here to determine, I will go on this journey. This is my journey. Well, Ezra gathers together a small band of people at the river Ahava. Let's see what we can learn from him. Verse 15 says, I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camped for three days. Three things to note in this, in this study this morning. The first thing is that Ezra's journey doesn't begin with a walk. It begins waiting. In fact, it begins with a period of preparation. That's number one, a period of preparation. Now, Bible students, remember Ezra's name means helper. And we talked about at length Wednesday night about how Ezra is a picture of the Holy Spirit who is our helper. And if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go walk through, study through that, listen to that. Because Ezra is in so many pretty stirring and amazing ways a picture of how the Holy Spirit ministers to and works in our lives. But this is a period of preparation. These three days they camp there at the river Ahava. The Holy Spirit prepares God's people. Before sending us out, He's always preparing. And He will prepare extensively, and He will prepare intensively. Extensively, in our studies, we've already seen the people have been prepared across 70 years of exile. And after that, 21 years of of building the second temple, and a further 57 years before Ezra camps out here at the river Ahava in Babylon. And we as a church have been through an extensive time of preparation. We've been through six years of being here, of waiting on the Lord, of praying to the Lord, of learning how to listen, and that will not stop. But that's been a more extensive preparation. But I think things are about to get intense. Intensive preparation. That is shorter term and more impacting and more immediate in its result. There's a gathering of people here over a period of three days. Now, we know in Bible study that the picture of a third day in Scripture is always a picture of rejoicing or restoration or resurrection. Jesus was resurrected on the third day. And there are many times throughout Scripture where that third day is of great consequence. What about three days? Is there something here in this picture of three days? Began to go back and look. You might jot this down. Under, under the heading there, for period of preparation, three days in the Bible is the time of testimony. Three days is a time of testimony as we see it in Scripture. Let me give you some examples of this. In Genesis chapter 40, Joseph is in prison. And he's approached by two men, a cupbearer for the king and a baker. And the cupbearer and the baker, both on the same night, have a bizarre dream. Different dreams, unique dreams, but, but very intense and very vivid. And they come to Joseph because they hear he's an interpreter of dreams. And the cupbearer says, here's what my dream was. The baker says, here's what my dream was. And what's interesting is Joseph says to the cupbearer, in three days, the king will, your head will be lifted up and you will be restored to your role in the palace. In three days. And he says to the baker, bad news, In three days your head will be lifted up and you will be hanged on a tree. Joseph spoke it. Three days went by and it happened. The three days are the time of testimony. What do you mean the time of testimony? It's the time for the outcome to testify to the prophecy or the interpretation. A word is spoken and there is a time of testimony before the the outcome is seen. And in that time of testimony, that's where faith is grown. That's where we learn to either believe God for His promises or reject the promises. That's where faith either swells or it fails. 
is in the time of testimony. Esther, as we're going to see here at the end of this year, Esther sends a message to her cousin Mordecai. And she says to him in Esther 4.16, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther makes a great statement of faith. I will stand up for my people. I'll go before the king, even though I risk my life in doing so. But I need you to pray for three days. Here's what I'm going to do. Three day period of time. And at the end of that, we'll see what the outcome is. Esther had great faith. The Jewish people there in Persia pray with her and for her. They fast together. And then Ezra comes before the king and saves her people. It's the time of testimony. The time of testimony. We see this in the life of Jonah. Jonah, who was stuffed halibut for three days in the belly of the fish. But that wasn't the time of testimony, gang. You know what the time of testimony was? After the fish irps Jonah up onto the beach. It was a three-day walk from that point for him to get to Nineveh. Three days for him to consider what the Lord was really calling him to. Three days for his heart to be ready to preach the Word. The time of testimony. In Acts chapter 9, Paul sees Jesus. He's walking on the road to Damascus, breathing murderous threats. He wants to take out the church. He's fighting against the church. And he sees Jesus who says, Saul. He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. You may recall the story. Saul is blinded. And they take him on into the city where he stays. And he, he fasts. And he prays. And he's blind for how long? Three days. Time of testimony from the spoken word of the Lord. The hearing by Paul to the point where faith rises and Paul is baptized. Scales fall from his eyes. He can see and suddenly he is on a new mission of life. It was a three-day turnaround for Paul. It was a time of testimony. Israel. Israel right now is in that three days. They are in the time of testimony. From the spoken promises of God to the outcome, the proof of His promises, they are in the season of testimony. We talked about this verse last week, Hosea 6.2. He'll revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. Tragically, there are some in Israel today who, who are not believing God for the promises anymore. Some who even believe God is dead or has ceased to exist, or has ceased to have any concern or care for His people Israel. But there are those hanging on to the Word, whose hearts will be turned, and who will see Jesus for who He is, and in three days will be raised up. Will the Lord do all He said He will do? That's the time of testimony, from proclamation to actual action. Jesus was in the ground for three days. Jesus was, he testified as much over and over during his three three year ministry. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'll be three days in the ground. You know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And during that time of testimony, what did his followers do? While they were despairing, God was preparing. While they were worried, Jesus actually at that time was preaching to the spirits of disobedience in prison. Boy, that's another topic for another time. But it was a period of three days from when Jesus said, I'm going down to when He said, I am raising up. I will be back in three days. And it blew them away when it happened. It was the time of testimony. What's the point of all this? Three days is the biblical time of testimony. The period of preparation. It's the time between proclamation and procession. Between speaking out and stepping out. 
And so as they wait there at the river of Ahava, it is the time of testimony. And you know, the heart can proclaim things all day long. We can speak things all we want. But as I said earlier, it takes time for faith to catch up to words. So often we say it, and then there's the time of testimony until we begin to act and do it. But once we do say it, once we declare it, once we speak it aloud, the the Helper, our Helper, the Holy Spirit, begins to prepare us for the follow-through, the period of preparation, the time of testimony. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He said in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so preparation can be extensive, The time of testimony is not necessarily limited to just three days. It could be three years. It could be six years. It could be far longer. But there comes a time when the period of preparation becomes intensive. And as I said before, I believe that's where we are. That's where Ezra and his band of followers are. In the intensive time of preparation, three days, and they're going to step out. This is our time of testimony. The site plan is with the county. And what we've shared this morning already, what are you going to do? How are you going to step out? What is the Lord speaking to you and to your heart in this fellowship as to how we can move out together? Now, in a period of intensive preparation, Ezra discovers something. It says in verse 15, When I observed the people and the priests, I didn't find any Levites there. Now, this was stunning to him. He gathers them all and he begins to count out and figure out what tribe different people are from. And he realizes there's not a single Levite there. They have to have the Levites. They're needed for the carrying out of the function of the temple, for the services. And Ezra says, wow, you know, without Levites, we don't have any support personnel. We don't have anybody to do the ministry of the church or of of Israel here. We're talking about, number two in your notes, priests for operation. They needed priests for operation. Verse 16 going on, he says, So I sent for Eliezer and Ariel, a list of men here, leading men, teachers, At the end of verse 17, he said, to bring ministers to us for the house of God. And verse 18, according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight of the sons of Mali. Skip up there, his name is Sherebiah, and his sons, and Hashabiah, and Yeshiah, 20 men, and then 220 of the temple servants. And you put it all together, and 258 temple servants, Levites and temple servants, 258 join Ezra in this period of three days. They're called upon, and they say, Okay, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm willing to go. They weren't willing at first, but now Ezra puts out the call and they say, okay, you know, yeah, this is my journey too. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this morning you're sitting here going, you know, I hadn't even really thought about being involved in in what they're presenting, but I think I'm supposed to go. I think I'm supposed to be a part of this. Well, so 258 joined them, priests for the operation of the temple, who serve in the courts of the Lord. Now, I kind of wonder why hadn't any Levites shown up at first. When Ezra called the people together and said, we're going back, we're going to go stir up Israel, why hadn't any Levites come? Maybe maybe they didn't think they were needed. Oh, I'm sure there's plenty of people taking care of that. I'm sure there are plenty involved, so I don't have to go. I don't have to be there. Maybe they knew that this would be a thankless task, as is often the case. You know, roll up your sleeves, difficult journey. And the Levites had to know if they went back, they weren't going to get any inheritance in terms of land. Remember the Levites of all the tribes of Israel didn't get any inheritance of land? It was all portioned out 
And the Levites were just kind of spread among the people as priests and teachers. But they didn't get their own land. Maybe you feel that way in terms of ministry. You don't feel necessary. Or maybe you don't see your immediate inheritance for the labor. But what did the Levites actually inherit? Does anybody remember? Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance. And to me, that's the greatest inheritance a person can have. It's not land, it's not buildings, it's not footprints. It's the Lord. The Lord is our inheritance. I'll tell you what, when this is all said and done, if and when that day comes when there's a building built and we worship in it for the first time, that is not our inheritance. The Lord is our inheritance. But through the process, we will have understood that in greater ways. Priests are needed for the service of the courts of the Lord. Are you in or are you out? 1 Peter 2.9 Peter said, You're a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So the call of the royal priesthood, which is what we're supposed to be, is a call to serve, to operate in our spiritual gifts, whether they're flashy gifts or not, to operate how the Lord has prepared us to operate and function, for the sake of the kingdom over ourselves, all the while knowing our inheritance is the Lord. Colossians 3.22 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And He is our inheritance. And guess what? You are His. Even more surprising than the fact that the Lord is our inheritance is the fact that we are his inheritance. I, check this out. This is just amazing to me. Ephesians 1.18 Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? His inheritance. Not yours. Not mine. Now our inheritance is the Lord. But in that passage, I, I, I truly believe what Paul is saying here is it's His calling. He's called us, but He's called us into His calling, into His work, into His methods, into His plans and vision. And in so doing, we would know, we would be enlightened, we would would have revealed to us what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You're His inheritance. And the Lord looks at you and says, these are mine. This is what I get out of all this. It's their hearts. They become my family, my people, my children. That's incredible. Your inheritance is Him. His inheritance is you. So the Levites gathered to Ezra and company at the river. What did they do? Verse 21. There I proclaimed, or then I proclaimed a fast, there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. Here it is again, fasting in the Bible. What is the deal with this fasting stuff? I mean, is that kind of one of those religious exercises? The, the elders can do that. You know, they can fast. <laughs> Especially if they're about to have a medical procedure. You know, that's a good time to fast. But, but what is the point of it otherwise? Listen, two quick things to note here. We talked about this when we studied Matthew. But I want to remind you of these things. That number one, fasting rejects the hypocritical for the humble. 
Fasting rejects the hypocritical for the humble. Jesus says in Matthew 6.16, Whether you fast or whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. He's talking about the Pharisees who would say, Oh, I'm having such a hard day. I mean, I'm really laboring for the Lord today. Well, why is that? Well, you know, I mean, I haven't eaten for 24 hours. Holy man, that's what I am. You know, it's hard, but I'm going to do it for Jesus. It's hypocritical. The word there Jesus uses in the Greek is hypocrites, and it means an actor, a mask wearer. Oh, I'm so holy. That's why I'm doing this fast. Well, fasting rejects that, gang. It rejects wearing a mask for humility. The journey that we are approaching here, the journey of truly having faith in the Lord, requires a removal of the mask that says, Yes, I can. Yeah, we can do that. Look among us. I mean, if we dig deep, we have the resources here. We can make this building happen. Hypocrites. It's hypocritical to think that we have the power in and of ourselves to do anything of consequence for the Lord. So we remove that mask. And in fasting, we say going forward right now is it's illogical. It defies human reason. It defies church growth strategies. It requires an attitude of no, we can't. No, we can't. But we know who can. Second thing fasting does is it rejects the natural for the supernatural. Rejects the natural. Jesus said, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so your fasting will not be noticed by men. That is in the natural. But by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, that's a supernatural thing. And the reality is, gang, the more we empty ourselves of the natural, which is what fasting is a picture of, the more room there is to be filled with the supernatural, which is His Holy Spirit. And even as you're fasting, that that sense of you have the hunger, pain, and it reminds you naturally, I would put food in right now. But supernaturally, I'm going to spend a few extra minutes here praying to the Lord and trusting Him. And the more we empty ourselves, again, of the natural, the more room there is for the supernatural. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man would sit here this morning and say, this is all a show. Now they got to march the guys up there and they all look like they're so fit. They got, they got something in their pocket. They have something, a plan they're going to pull out, but they're just trying to make it look like something more than it is. It's all just a show. Well, the natural man doesn't get it. natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. That is both the natural and the supernatural. If you're walking in the Spirit, you're looking at both. Naturally, this is perplexing. Supernaturally, God can do anything. And that's how we appraise things. Verse 22 goes on. It says, I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. Verse 22 came out of the wall this week like a sledgehammer as to what we are dealing with. The natural versus the supernatural. Ezra had behind him, and he knew it, the full faith and resources of the Persian government. 
Artaxerxes had already said, anything you need, Ezra, it's yours. We're behind you in this journey, in this quest. We will help you. Whatever you need, all you have to do is ask. Natural resources were available through the government of Persia for Ezra. But Ezra was ashamed to even ask. I love that line. I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen. He's thinking to himself, how in the world could I? On the one hand, talk about a God who's favorably disposed to all those who seek Him, while on the other hand, asking the secular world to help us out. Isn't that right where we are? How could Ezra ask the secular world for help while proclaiming the glory of God? How can we? If we truly believe. Do we truly believe? what the Lord is doing here. i, I got to read this quote to you. This is from uh, Ironside. Several years ago, he wrote, How little of the spirit of Ezra entered into our time-serving age, when almost any means are adopted for carrying out what is called the work of the Lord. And any help is greedily sought, even from the unholy and profane, with no thought of the awful dishonor done to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Money is begged from all sources. Patronage desired from the ungodly. If they have but wealth and influence, all this is professed by followers of Him. Ezra's faith and godliness might well put all such to shame. His stand contrasts with the dreadful lowering of the standards so prevalent throughout Christendom. Why would you not seek a bank loan? Because we don't want to seek the help of the world in the work of the Lord. Because we want to say it was his doing. He really, no, there was no way this could happen. Except that the good hand of the Lord be upon it. Verse 23. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Let me ask you, does he listen any less in 2009 than he did in 458 B.C.? Are, are the Lord's ears clogged these days where He doesn't quite hear like He used to? Well, you know, He's been around a while. So maybe it's just His hearing is not as good as it used to be. Paul says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Ephesians 6.18. In Philippians 4.6, he says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so I ask, do we? I know there are those who do. How about collectively as a church family? Do we make our petitions and requests truly known to God? We must petition the Lord first and foremost for everything that we do. This is not optional for our fellowship. It's not optional for this church. We must go forward in faith, not seeking the protection of earthly monarchy or secular government or even physical, fiscal limitations. Hebrews 11.6, as Rod said earlier this morning, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. But let me say this, gang. It's one thing to speak faith. It's another to act on it. To act out our faith. Faith has hands and feet. And if we say we believe it, but we don't act on it, we don't believe it. So we can stand up this morning and say, yes, we believe the Lord to provide. But if we're not willing to step out 
in that provision and in that faith, even ourselves personally, we don't believe what we're saying. Let me tell you what will happen. Let me tell you what will happen as we seek God's favor by faith. We will have a reason to share our testimony without credit to man. We will have a reason to share our testimony without credit to man. Acts 1.8 Jesus said, you're going to have power. You'll have power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You're going to have power. But listen to what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. You're going to start in Jerusalem. And I want you to move out into Judea. And then beyond that to Samaria. And then even to the remotest parts of the earth. Gang, we're in a pretty remote part of the earth. Especially by comparison to Jerusalem. I've flown there. I know how far away it is. Talking about 20 hours or so by airplane. It's a long journey. We are remote by comparison to Jerusalem. But we here have received the benefit of the power of the Holy Spirit starting in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and spreading out even to the remote parts of the earth. We have a testimony here among us of the goodness of God. Now, now please understand something. And this may be a subtle difference for you, but it's very important. I said we would have a reason to share our testimony. If we step out in faith here, and that building is built, once it's all said and done, we will have a reason to share our testimony. But again, our testimony will not be a finished church building. It'll just be a reason. The church building will just be a reason to share our actual testimony. What do you mean? Someone will say to you at some point, how did you build that building without a loan? And your response will be, oh, that story's great, but let me tell you something that's even more amazing. Jesus Christ died to save my life. Well, this, you, you're telling me that church you started out in a, in a house over there? You met in a barn for several years? Well, how does that work out? Oh, that's a wonderful story, but I have one better for you. Jesus, turn my life around and save me. You want to hear about Him? What I'm saying, gang, is every new work of God, everything that He does among us, small and big, in our lives, opens up opportunity for us to share the greatest work of God, which is the coming of Jesus. Anything that we say, look at the great things He's done, if someone points that out, you turn it around immediately and say, yeah, well, He is a great God, but He's even greater because He saves people. Want to be saved? Do you want to know Jesus like I know Jesus? Because He's the testimony. He's the focus. The second thing that will happen, gang, is we will function as a royal priesthood with the power of our Ezra, our helper. We will function as a royal priesthood. Galatians 5.25, this is interesting. Paul says, and it almost sounds redundant, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Isn't that the same thing, Paul? No, I don't think so. I think we can live by the Spirit right here in this barn very comfortably for years. You know? Try to fly under the radar. Just stay here. And we'll just change the meeting date. Next week it'll be Monday morning. See you there. You know, We can live by the Spirit, and it's a very personal and intimate and individual thing. But Paul says if you're going to do that, you need to walk by the Spirit. Which means you step out. Which means you invite others in. Which means you share the faith that you have. Which means your life is a testimony to the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We will function as a royal priesthood by the power of our, of our helper as we walk through this. And it means getting away from empty talk and stepping out. 
And we have a marvelous opportunity here ahead of us to do and walk in what we say we believe. The third and final thing to note here. We will see and receive our divine portion from our Father God. What's interesting to me in this story is that they meet at the river called Ahava. Ahava is not in Israel, it's in Babylon. They haven't left yet. In fact, Ahava is probably a little tributary or canal that branched off from the Euphrates River. We don't know exactly where it was. It was a a town that was right by this tributary, somewhere there near the, the great city of Babylon. And Ezra goes to that town, to that watering hole, to that river, to meet up with his people before heading out. Well, we don't know where it is, but we do know what the name means. And the name means, I shall subsist. I shall subsist. Before taking one step on the journey, this was Ezra's declaration, I believe, of faith. I shall subsist by the hand of my God. We shall subsist by the good hand of the Lord. We will not subsist by the work of the government. We will not subsist by the work of the promises of Artaxerxes, by the troops and the power that he has to offer. We shall subsist by the hand of our God. And how does the story end? Verse 31, Then we journeyed out from the river of I shall subsist on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was over us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and we remained there for three days. The journey was made because the good hand of God was over the people and because Ezra, our helper, was with them. We will make our journey because the good hand of God is over his people and because the Holy Spirit is with us and walking with us and going before us. I think it's interesting, I mentioned Wednesday night, the hand of the enemy obviously came against them. Verse 31 indicates that. There were obviously ambushes along the way, but they were protected from all of this. But Ezra doesn't detail these things. He doesn't point out, the hand of the enemy was against us, and then we have two more chapters of of enemy attack that we see. There were ambushes, many details, the people and the times and the places they were ambushed. It's not there. All he says is, oh yeah, there were some challenges along the way, but God protected us from all of them. Because God was with them and the ambushes and the attacks of the enemy were inconsequential just as they will be when we find they are with Jesus. I don't believe we're ever going to look back and talk about our persecutions, our hardships, our trials. We're not going to see those things. Was it a hard life? You know, it may have been, but God was with me. I'm sure there were things that went wrong, and I'm sure there were some hardships. I, I just can't for the life of me remember exactly what they were. But the good hand of God was with me, and my helper was there all the while. All we're going to really remember, I believe, is that we got there with the Spirit as our pledge. We got there. And Isaiah 65.17 tells us, the Lord says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. God loves to do new things. And I'm convinced He's about to do a new thing here among us once again at the bridge. And I invite you to come along And I don't know any more than I knew six years ago what it's going to look like. But I believe the Lord is at work. And Ezra's here. His Spirit is among us to lead us and guide us forward in Jesus Christ. So, what do you say? Who wants to go?
Father, I just ask that these would not be words of declaration. Not just a statement of faith. I pray for something far deeper than that. I pray that You will stir up here among us the faith of Ezra. That You will ignite a new season before us and a new determination of Your people. Each and every one of us, whatever our part is, whatever our portion is, whatever You've called us to, whether it's, it's loading the carts or drawing the horses forward or walking alongside or carrying the backpacks and the baggage or, or Father providing food at the campsites along the way, whatever it is that You have called us to do, I pray that every person in this fellowship would step into their role knowing that You have called them and led them forward. Father, You have shown great provision for us for six years now. You have provided in miraculous ways. We continue to trust You for that as well. To trust You for more than we could possibly ask or imagine. Father, I for one want to ask and want to begin to imagine beyond what I ever have before. Father, we seek a kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. And we trust You for it. And we look forward, oh Jesus, we look forward to the day when we will receive our inheritance, which is You. And when we humbly might become Your inheritance as well. In Jesus' name, Amen.